Stay home, be safe. This has been the message that we've been receiving since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. But is home really safe for everyone? This is especially true for LGBTQI folk. You know, home not being the safest place that one can be. The COVID-19 pandemic has exposed the already existing state of inequality that exists. We've seen this in how others have been left more vulnerable than others. Cases of violence towards sexual and gender minorities have really gone up during this pandemic period. Given that in most countries globally, LGBTQI folk are either criminalized or shunned by society and discriminated upon. Many have been afraid to report or seek medical treatment because of stigma. Additionally, again, because of criminalization and stigma, there exists few economic opportunities for LGBTQI folk. And with the pandemic, this has not been a group that has been primarily considered when economic recovery measures are made by governments and relevant institutions. This can be termed as economic violence because it is not exactly care. I cannot fail to mention that in a number of cases within fundamentalist spaces and ideas, LGBTQI folk have been blamed for the pandemic. All these issues, among others, have meant that LGBTQI folk have continued to fight and find ways of navigating through the pandemic. Today's episode explores more on this. Let's dive right in. Talking about things that make you uncomfortable and awkward is what we do. We break the ice so that you can freely talk about them. This is Not Your Usual Subjects Podcast with your host, Quem. In today's episode, we get to hear from two guests, Grace from Zimbabwe and Kalisi from Fiji. With violence having gone up during this period, we're experiencing a mental health crisis within the LGBTQI movement. We've lost many to suicide. Folks continue to suffer from depression and anxiety. There is a continued need for ensuring that dedicated mental health care is made available. We also explore how sexual and gender minorities have been navigating access to sexual and reproductive health services and information. With healthcare centers prioritizing COVID-19 cases and given the already existing stigma for LGBTQI folk, we learn how hard it was for LGBTQI persons in Zimbabwe to access SRHR services and information. Additionally, girls, which is gays and lesbians of Zimbabwe, demonstrate the importance of ensuring that we honor folks' lived realities if any shifts are to be made following the report they commissioned called Community Voices that helped them understand how best they can support their communities of care during this period. In Fiji, following the already existing reduced funding towards LGBTQI programming, including HIV programming, and now the prioritization of COVID-19 cases in medical centers, accessing SRHR services has further been limited given that many LGBTQI-friendly centers have been shut down. All in all, LGBTQI folk continue to find ways to anchor their resistance in joy and dream of a future where one is not a statistic but celebrated for the fullness of their life. I woke up in the morning ready to face the day, excited for what could unfold. I couldn't wait. Indeed, it was the month of November, where rainbows shine and there's no shades of red. 
I walked out of the house telling myself I need to chill out. Who am I to be radical, to be loud and proud? I tried to lay low, blaming the crowd, trying so hard not to make a sound. Walking down the street, I hear Mau Mau Nasani Teve. Oh, Nangauri. I think I heard. I give myself a pinch. Bloody Vieve Alewa sucking on our land. Oh, goodbye. I lie. You're lonely and cold. No one's had to reach out to hole. For I got punished tonight for the, both the devil and my soul. My soul ran down my overly decorated casket, like cotton flowers laid down in a basket. You beat the pharaoh the rings of tears, promising to stand to fight, stand up and fight for the queers. But hold on, I pick it up for a second. Where were you when my car was broken? And where were you a hush would be spoken? When I was used a snap as a token, as I lay down in my resting place. And, and you bless me with a present and grace, while I exit from this earth with a, without a single trace. Will you promise to love and respect and embrace the gaze? Our next guest is Kalisi. Kalisi identifies as a Vakasa Lewa Lewa, which is an indigenous identity referring to persons who identify as that gender. Kalisi goes by the pronouns they, she. She is an advocacy engagement officer at Youth Voices Count, a regional network of young lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and intersex individuals in Asia Pacific. Kalisi shares with us some of Fiji's responses to COVID-19 pandemic and the shifts it brought for LGBTQI youth in the country. She also talks about how violence remains imminent as well as shares with us the dreams that they have for themselves as a queer person. Before we hear from Kalisi, I'd like to mention that in this part of the episode, you might need to turn up and down your volume as you find comfortable so as to not miss Kalisi's sharing. We acknowledge that we encountered audio quality issues during this recording. However, it is important to us that folks are able to share their stories and that sometimes means that we will face connectivity issues and so perfection was not our aim. A transcript will be available. That said, let's dive right in. LGBT communities or families have been, and sex workers are often excluded from, from evacuation centers. Uh, we, uh, we often blame at the, we often blame for the natural disasters. They notice uh, the discrimination in and growing up, and also with the injustices that happen, happening also with in the uh, the healthcare system, we cannot uh, donate blood because uh, will that's how HIV will spread or AIDS, and with the stigma that have been associated, uh, and in me being queer, being openly feminine, and perceived uh, of fem- uh, feminine behavior, me uh, being a focus on now that. It's just enough for society to pick on me, and especially growing up in the church and being excluded and being laughed at or made fun of, of being feminine. And I think my journey into the, the LGBT movement started through my work through the HIV work. And I used to work as a volunteer for various LGBT organizations and also with the Ministry of Health of Fiji where we do peer mentor, peer, as a peer educator, uh, uh, talking about advocating around unsafe sex and contraceptives and uh, doing counseling around mental health and suicide prevention with young people, which led to me in the movement. And I was inspired of meeting many activists, uh, especially young LGBT people, queer people, uh, 
who are on the front line of activism and moving into the space of uh, feminism and intersectional feminism. And I was inspired and I was passionate about the work they were doing. I, uh, when COVID-19 uh, came to Fiji, uh, when COVID-19 struck Fiji, it was a very difficult time for everyone. When the first case of COVID came to Fiji, uh, the first patient was a fat attendant and he was an LGBT person. It, uh, there was so much stigma around towards LGBTIQ people because a person who got the young pregnant got COVID. Also, the same the same month of March, we, Fiji was supposed to be preparing for the two tropical cyclones. So it wasn't seen as apparently as a trip a double pandemic or a triple pandemic. The tropical cyclone category five hit Fiji, which is a super cyclone a category five, which destroyed many homes and many people have lost their homes, lost their life and livelihood towards this tropical cyclone Yasa, and and there was just so much stigma towards, uh, and we were the LGBTQIQ people were blamed for bringing this natural disaster uh, that uh, to to Fiji. It was quite scary because uh, the, we were scared of going to evacuation centers or because we were, we were already blamed for COVID, bringing COVID to Fiji and also bringing the, this tropical natural disaster into Fiji. And one thing I never was amazed that many young LGBTIQ people were involved around human care response, even, even though there's the, the stigma and discrimination. Uh, that the whole the whole of Fiji was putting on LGBTQ people, but LGBTQ people were uh, young people was at the forefront of uh, providing humanitarian aid, uh, working with the civil society organizations in Fiji, with government ministries, the Fiji NDMO. Uh, the NDMO is a department from the uh, a department uh, for, around DSNAP. They provide. Uh, to work around uh, disaster preparedness, and, and many of these uh, uh, LGBTIQ people were volunteers, who were volunteer, unpaid volunteers, doing uh, was at the forefront, providing aid, uh, doing providing, uh, were in were mobilizing resources to the people affected, and even many young people, I mean LGBTIQ people, who many of my friends who are LGBTIQ people, were working uh, with the Ministry of Health, uh, risking their lives, and going. Uh, Doing work, uh, working with the Ministry of Health, uh, even though the ministry, the ministry, the hospital, the hospital staff, the doctors and nurses were understaffed and were needed assistance and was and in many and I was just I and I seen this and many of my LGBTQ people friends here in Suva actually were at the forefront of. Uh, providing a helping hand with the Ministry of Health, to, uh, helping them with the screening, testing, and also risking their lives, and providing, uh, providing, uh, providing support to the Ministry of Health and NDMO and DSNAP. And some of the priorities has, when COVID happened has changed. And we have noticed that uh, SRHR services have been reduced, funding towards LGBTIQ people, private uh, programs rather have been reduced, I think even before COVID, when uh, the global fund pulled out from the Pacific, or uh, Fiji, especially Fiji, um, I think during uh, work, uh, they have even reduced work around the HIV program of funding youth-led organization, LGBT-led organization here in Fiji, which has reduced fund uh, programs, and there's been uh, programs around LGBTQ and 
uh, especially around the HIV response, because many young people, many LGBTQ people and young people, uh, have been at the forefront of uh, have been at the forefront of uh, doing work on LGBT inclusion. Most of the work has shifted because the, there's no funding of, of programs, and COVID when COVID nineteen happened, there, I noticed that most the priorities have shifted to COVID, where uh, HIV clinic has been closed. Or, or have reduced services, uh, which is which is like, uh, and also with the current research by with the current uh, report by UNAIDS that uh, that in Fiji, uh, with the reduced funding of program around LGBT uh, around HIV response, uh, in Fiji there's a rise in between 2019, 20, 20, the, there's, a, there's a rise in the HIV infection amongst young people from ages 15 to 25 between 2010 to 2019. And that is really frightening because young, with, with uh, the, there's, when funding, when there's no funding towards uh, HIV response, which makes it even more diffi uh, difficult for young people to access resources, and it is, and also the priorities have also shifted because, and program has also shifted uh, away from the HIV, uh, the around HIV response. And I've noticed that uh, most of the work around, most of the funding is just around work around climate justice, uh, disaster risk reduction, or DRR, and uh, uh, around climate justice and. Which also meant that the programs have, and priorities have been shift, uh, shifted, because and it's quite sad because young, uh, because the changes in priorities, uh, many young people and LGBTQ people are exposed to the rise in new HIV infections, and with the COVID nineteen, uh, many other services have been reduced, as many young people have uh, are unemployed, because most of young people. Are involved in the tourism sector, and the pandemic has really, uh, really affected through our, the livelihood, and with uh, COVID nineteen uh, also having many young people who engage in sex work has been also affected, and they've been uh, with contraceptives have been running out in some safe houses. Uh, many young people have been engaging in. Have been having unprotected sex, especially for young people who engage in sex work, and they, as they look for money and as to find as to find a, a source of living, they risk their lives. I had a friend who said that I'd rather contract COVID than go hungry because she mentioned that it's been really tough on sex workers. They've been risking their lives, risking their lives to to provide uh, provide food on the table for their for their families but and it's and, it's, and that's like the really re those are the realities of what people in the community are facing and and yeah so i started my my work st uh, with way this started in the middle of the pandemic actually uh after i was like reduced hours and later when uh was not employed. Uh, my job due the pandemic, I lost my job as a radio announcer, and I got was given this opportunity to work for YBC. I think the LGBTQ organizing also changed during the pandemic. Is that we had to uh, YBC had to change its uh, 
train is programming and it's the way it used to be, had to be strategize our work and most of it involved face-to-face meeting in Bangkok in Thailand and in England from the Philippines and with the new normal of working from working from home uh, priorities also change and especially the work has also increased especially uh, around the bridge of the high-level political forum around HIV for UN AIDS and he and I see many young people uh, re-strategizing, I mean, youth-led organization, and many young people have been uh, regrouping, re-strategizing the work around HIV response and uh, the work around inclusion. Uh, so Youth Voice have this, uh, also have this program called the, the IGNITE Grant, Empowerment Grant, where LGBT is committed in uh, supporting LGBT youth-led uh, initiative, in the, especially in the region. And with also with the pandemic, uh, there was a rise in gender-based violence. In currently, sixty-four uh, percent of women and girls have experienced intimate partner violence, and it has also increased during the pandemic. Uh, the pandemic, and where where people with disability experience ten times. Uh, higher uh, experience times higher of domestic of gender-based violence, intimate partner violence, and whereas LGBTIQ people, uh, there was a kind of research by Diva for Equality in the report indicated that 84% of LGBT women has uh, experienced intimate partner violence, and in just uh, early this year, I lost a dear activist and a dear friend. Uh, Holy Kef, who was murdered, brutally murdered, in just a few meters away from her home in Nukwalafatonga. Even uh, with Fiji having a, I would say Fiji is very uh, has a progressive law towards LGBTIQ inclusion under the uh, the, the twenty thirteen Constitution, uh, Section twenty six of the Fiji Constitution that talks about protection towards LGBT. There's uh, a law, a part of the Constitution, protection of and protection away from discrimination from discrimination of people with uh, LGBTQ people even though the law is there many young people have been exposed to horrific violence and to uh, to act uh, to uh, to LGBTQ people have died uh, to her um, to homophobia and transphobia uh, uh, there were one was murdered uh, one was murdered uh, a law student uh, who was LGBTIQ who was murdered uh, near her home here in in Suva, Bo- uh, um, uh, Yosef Magnus, uh, who was just returning back from work and he was murdered. Uh, and also, each, uh, there was a trans uh, death violence, a, a trans um, violence that happened. Right, a another uh, law student uh, from was murdered in the capital city in Oaki and still there's no justice being done and the killer is the, the person is still uh, with the, the, the killer the person who murdered the two dear uh, dear uh, fellow sister brother and sister who of who are my LGBTQ activist family who still justice have been, have been served as queer people, we are still uh, we are still scared that many young people have also 
LGBTQ people have uh, have died of of died of suicide, and that is even frightened. That I'm still feeling scared. That we that we don't want to become a statistic. LGBTIQ cases are still uh, um, those murder cases. Cases are always never been solved because we need the justice. When the justice system is is against us, even though we've been protected by the law, the pro this progress by the law, it's it's always never implemented. Because, and also, accessing the justice system becomes even more scary. Becomes scary, even more scary. That sometimes. The own the police force or the armed force becomes the perpetrator itself too, because the political landscape in Fiji is such because the the current government who was uh, who also started the two thousand and six coup the coup, which is he is currently in his second term of government, and so there's police intimidation and uh, military intimidation that existed in Fiji and such that. That it becomes very scary for LGBT people to access the justice system. I dream of the world where where I don't become a statistic, where I don't die, like become a number of those who died of suicide, who died in the hands of, of violence. My fantasy every night is sort of the world where I don't become a statistic and I live free, without fear, without discrimination, where I don't feel judged, where I'm accepted and I. And where I am celebrated for who I am. It is such a pleasure to have you join us today. Folks, I'm so excited to have Grace join us. Grace is a counseling psychologist and works with girls, that is gays and lesbians of Zimbabwe. Girls, which was established in 1990 in Harare, Zimbabwe, is a membership-based organization providing services to the Zimbabwean LGBTI community. Grace, I am very sure my introduction did not cover all the wonderful parts of who you are, you personally, and girls as well. Would you please share some more? True, I'm a counseling psychologist. Um, just to correct that, uh, GAUS in a, is an association of LGBTIQ people plus in Zimbabwe. It is uh, membership based. So Grace um, leads uh, the counseling and psychosocial support unit, which is in Harare, Mutare, Mashingo, and Bulawayo. So we have expanded since 2018. I'm passionate about my work. I wake 24 over 7, but of course, I don't forget my me time. Now, you co-created with your community members a research called Community Voices, which highlighted the lived realities of LGBTQI folk at the onset of the pandemic. From the public health messages, a lot of conversations asked people to stay at home and be safe. But for a number of LGBTI folk, home isn't safe. So from your research... This came out quite a lot with the increasing cases of violence that also included intimate partner violence. There was also a spike in STI infections. So please share with us why you girls commissioned the research and what came out um, out of the research, rather what came out of the report, the Community Voices Report. 
Gauss commissioned uh, their research because uh, Gauss is people-centered. Uh, Gauss is LGBTI-centered. It uh, believes uh, talking with the grassroots is where you get uh, a lot of narratives, is where you get a lot of stories. That is why Gauss commissioned that, to hear what the communities say, to listen and observe from their lived realities. That is where you get the so many truths that came out from the report. And so what are some of the things that were coming out from the report, given that you commissioned the report during the onset of the pandemic? And there are different things that the report covers. So would you please share with us some of the overarching issues and shifts that happened during the pandemic and how it was affecting the communities that you work uh, you work with? Um, they said that the country was uh, shadowed. The country went into darkness. The announcement of the COVID-19 brought uh, the community back to uh, 1980, where, HIV, where the first HIV case was diagnosed in 1980. They said that we could envision people dying. We could uh, envision people being carried in black body plastic bags. Uh, they were so much surrounded by fear. They were so much surrounded by the unknown because they didn't understand this COVID. They didn't understand what it meant for the country, for the whole country, to lock down for organizations, for different sectors in agriculture, in health, to close down. So that was uh, the fear that was in the community. This also led to a lot of depression because people were quarantined, people were isolated, people were staying at home, people had to stay home. But what is home? Uh, those homes might be home for other people, probably who are heteronormative, but for the LGBTI community that lives double lives at home and outside, it was a nightmare. It was very difficult for them to, be pretend, to pretend to be homosexual, to pretend to be heterosexual at home, and to pretend a to have a girlfriend at home, it did not occur very well. It was like they were acting. And uh, some of the issues that came out were that uh, there was invasion of privacy. Some of their WhatsApp um, apps were uh, opened by their relatives, by their family. In that process, it was in involuntary um, outing of their sexual orientation. You also notice that there was increased intimate partner violence because if you look at most 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 um, of of the voices of the narratives that are in community voices, they live in high density suburbs and they would scramble for space. Probably it's a two roomed house or probably it's a four roomed house, so there was not so much space and there was no privacy. Some of them would go and sit by bridges. Those are the youths because most of them are employed in the informal sector. So you realize that they had nothing to do and there was an increase in use of um, alcohol and, 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 and substances. They would sit by the roads and this also led to a lot of um, public violence from uh, the heteronormative society where they would comment to say a boy-girl or girl-boy walk properly, walk nicely, who do you think you are? Those things are not wanted in Zimbabwe. So we also recorded a number of um, 
uh, gender-based violence in the communities, especially by those youths that sit by the bridges, uh, abusing crystal meth, abusing somodia in opaque beer that comes in small bottles. And in the family also, there was domestic violence where we also realized that families would gang up a homosexual person and they would beat them up and they would also threaten to report them to the police uh, because already this follows precedence by the former um, president of Zimbabwe, Robert Mugabe, who said we don't want uh, homosexuals, meaning Gochani, in Zimbabwe. They are worse than dogs and pigs. So all those threats, all, those, all that uh, gender-based violence, all that physical violence was com coming from the community as well as the family, friends and relatives. You would also realize that in terms of um, food, and all nutrition to those that were taking ARVs. Um, some of them defaulted because there was not food in the home. Their source of livelihood had been uh, cut off because of the informal sector they were employed. Everyone had to stay at home. So there was no food at home. There was scramble for food at home. And for them to be to take ARVs, you also needed to to have a healthy diet where you'd need um, vitamins, where you'd also need protein for the um, medication to, to work very well. You also realize that you, you, you highlighted um, an increased number of STIs. The, 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 the country was in total lockdown. The health services also had to reduce staff. So you realize that they had no way to access um, condoms and lubricants. And for the older advocates, which we call peer educators here in Zimbabwe, they were also in shock. So primarily the country came to a halt or to stop. No one had a, a perfect plan. No, there was no plan. It was a disaster, <laughs> you know. So you realize that there was an increase in number of STI. Even up to date, we are still battling to treat those because they are at an advanced stage. The other reason is also that to those who could access medication, it was not safe for them to keep that medi medication in the house for fear of that me medication being discovered. Um, so they would rather not take that medication. That's why you realize that some defaulted taking their RRVs and also some defaulted not taking their STI treatment because they feared that once discovered at home, um, it will be another story. It will be something else. So those that are some of the community narratives, those are some of the community voices. One, one MSN said to me, Grace, when my ARVs were discovered, they were shoved down the drain in the toilet. I don't know whether they wanted me to survive or not. The other one said to me, Grace, when they discovered my ARVs, they put them in the oven and they baked them. Then they gave me back. I wonder if then they still if they have any impact even if I still take a tablet. So those are some of the community voices that came after girls commissioned the research. Thanks so much for sharing that Grace. That was quite a light into the lived realities of uh, a number of LGBTQI folk living in Zimbabwe and that girls have interfaced with within their work. Uh, along community organizing and movement building in the region, in the country. Um, and while you were speaking, Grace, 
I know that there has been a number of innovations that have taken place um, in terms of just shifting into what the realities have have been. So, for example, I know that different uh, with different approaches, um, organizations or community organizing within the region have found ways to uh, uh, safely store ARVs for uh, folks who will be needing them. So I wonder um, what have been some of the opportunities and the ways in which you have been able to adapt to the to the realities that have been coming up as a result of the pandemic. What we have done is we have uh, a database, like I told you, girls is a membership based organization. In our database, what we then did with our communications, um, we had to constantly and consistently um, uh, update our members with information on um, health, with information on COVID-19. That way we would use WhatsApp groups uh, messaging. And also in those platforms, we conducted um, discussions Discussions were coming from the qualitative data that we were collecting online as counselors. Then we could do, analyze the data and see what are the dominant narratives or the dominant issues that are coming out. Then we would then um, come out with uh, topics to address issues that were coming out. Some of the issues that were coming out, like I highlighted, increase in STIs, increase in abuse of um, uh, people who use drugs, uh, blackmailing and so forth. So those are some of the interventions that we did. But when we realized that we had um, our community that was on ARVs, their jobs um, uh, had been um, interrupted. We also came up with a COVID-19 food package that uh, could sustain them for a month so that they're also able to take their medication. So we had a, a COVID-19 basic social welfare package that um, they picked up from the office or we could use our vehicle uh, to take to their communities. What we also did, because we also had uh, a COVID center where most people, this one is the first model clinic that we had in Harare and everyone is used to it. It was moved from um, Wilkins Hospital to Parenyatwa and Parenyatwa did not have trained healthcare workers. What we then did, one of our interventions, having noticed that and there were complaints that came from the community. We then, in liaison with Wilkins, which is a municipality hospital, cancer hospital, we then had to ask healthcare workers. We had to set up a satellite clinic here at Girls to operate on Tuesdays and Fridays. And that way we had to send, we had to send out flyers and advertise to say the clinic is now at the Girls Resource Center. If there are people who are wanting um, drug resupply, if there are people who are wanting um, a, access to health services, uh, if there are people that are wanting access to the internet, then they could come to the clinic because it was open on Tuesdays and Fridays. So those are some of the mechanisms that we did. But again, when the COVID announcement came in, there were restrictions, there were travel restrictions. Whoever had to travel had to have a, some form of documentation to allow them to travel. Those were only given now to frontline defenders, and you realize that our community did not have um, those travel letters. So, 
for them now to travel from point A to point B to access their treatment or to access their drug resupply was uh, a challenge. What we then did is like we 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 used a girl's vehicle, of course, following the SOPs for COVID nineteen, would pick them up at a, a central a central place from their homes to get to the clinic. Thereafter, would then drop in town. So coming into town was very difficult. But going back home was not a challenge. So they would drove, they would be dropped in town. Then they find their way back home. So those are some of the of the interventions that we brought uh, forward for the LGBTI community to try and limit or reduce um, uh, the challenges that they were they were having. On emergencies, we set up a, a an online platform, counseling platform, where uh, the counselors and uh, the react team, the girls react team. Uh, had um, data and airtime allowances to be able to attend to the communities uh, um, that had challenges or that needed a rapid response. So those are some of the mechanisms that we had to put in place to to cater for our um, community. So our approach actually was uh, tailor-made according to the to the challenges and the issues that we raised. So we had to develop and tailor make, we could say this was a differentiated service uh, delivery where then we tried to suit each and every client's uh, needs. I appreciate your sharing with us, Grace. This just reminded me of, you know, feminist solidarity or solidarity building within the LGBTQI movement and the feminist movement in general, uh, because it reminds me of the principle of mutual support between individuals, groups, organizations, allies to work towards centering care and offering support to folks who need it. Um the other thing that I, I, I have to ask Grace is now mental health and care as a way of well-being was important before the pandemic and also now during the pandemic. So as a counseling psychologist, would you please affirm why this is important and maybe also share some of the ways in which uh, we can care for ourselves and as well, some of the ways in which we can extend care to the collective as well, because some of the ways in which we can care for ourselves include extending that care within the collective so that we are also centering collective care within uh, our solidarity work, that we are centering collective and self-care within our ways of living and working because these are hard times. And so, um, yeah, what, what, are your, what are some of your thoughts around that? Perfectionism and uh, coronavirus don't mix. Um, that's one thing. And um, uh, during this pandemic, uh, you need to be kind to yourself. So whilst you're doing this work, uh, you suffer burnout. So it is very important that you observe healthy days. Um, right now, we are even advocating that um, staff gets uh, at least one healthy day a month. And uh, because you suffer um, fatigue, uh, that is very important for you to be effective uh, the next day or tomorrow. Me time is very important. How somebody takes their me time is different. Somebody would like to take their me time through music. Somebody would like to take their me time through um, nature, you know, going in the bush and 
just looking at animals or just looking at the vegetation, the greenery. You know, Zimbabwe is very blessed with um, beautiful fauna and flora. Also, to be able to ask yourself, am I eating well? Am I sleeping well? A bit of exercise will work the trick. Uh, take leave. You know, some of us don't want to take leave uh, from January to December. That leave time is very important so that you take away yourself from work. And also, again, you need to set boundaries. Can I do this? Can I not do this? Are these targets realistic? realistic? You also need to question yourself that. You also need to reconnect with things that you enjoy, such as singing, such as farming. I myself love farming. So every weekend, part of my me time and part of, part of me reconnecting to the things that I, I enjoy doing is to go to the farm and just see the green that I'm growing and, uh, you know, pluck one or two, three weeds. And um, that really helps. I would also say to the LGBTI community, it is very important that uh, they need to reach out for help for help when it comes to health issues. And um, also, again, counseling helps. You need to have a conversation with somebody. Talk therapy. In Shona, we say a problem shared is a problem solved. So those are some of the things that I could also recommend to the LGBTIQ community. It's unfortunate that because of um, COVID-19, we have been re restricted in um, socializing or in making contact with uh, the people that we love. Uh, it is also encouraged that, you know, visiting friends, visiting relatives, uh, visiting the countryside or visiting home, the grassroots where your grandfather or your grandma is, you know, just reconnecting with, with the old folks. It's something that can also be good therapy. To, to one. We invite you to pick some of what Grace has shared that resonates with you and add it on to your daily or just your general practice in your ways of being and living. Uh, Grace, I know that um, there are usually different narratives that expand across different areas in our lives. And because we're talking about collective uh, care and self-care. Let's talk about queer joy because a lot of times we tend to see in a lot of narratives this gray cloud that is hanging over queer folk and LGBTQI identifying people. So would you please share with us some of the queer joy that um, you've seen or that you enjoy uh, being part of within your work um, in, in, in Zimbabwe uh, and at GALS? I love the jacaranda queen. This happens almost every year when we have, um, you know, beauty pageants, you know, dragging in different outfits. And because homosexuality is not legal in Zimbabwe, but uh, uh, we are challenging that narrative. We are challenging that narrative through celebration of the right to vote autonomy. Uh, to embrace sexuality, so that I've seen it, it's beautiful and it's 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 amazing. And at some point, I remember uh, three years back when it was held in in a in a in, in a place outside Harare town where we had almost all the LGBTIQ people coming from from for the whole of Zimbabwe. We had the police then coming the following morning when the Jacaranda pigeon had just finished off and people had just left. And people laughed at that and they were saying, wow, we've done it. We need to do this again. We also have um, 
the billboards. Um, we have said that, yes, we might rush to go and say the law should change, the law should change. We mounted um, billboards in Harare and in Bulawayo, something that is new to celebrate Pride Month. And the billboards say, Munu Munu, a person is a person. Uh, dignity, respect, and rights. And I'm telling you, the Twitter pages, the Instagram pages, the Facebook pages are, are watched with a beautiful comments. And some people are, say, are saying, I never saw this day coming. So that alone, that visibility alone in Zimbabwe, it's, 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 it's a celebration. Unfortunately, when um, one of the billboards in, 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 in Blawai was destroyed, after having been mounted after three days, uh, we had a team of youths. We don't know whether it's political because for us in Zimbabwe, uh, soggy issues, sexual orientation is not a political issue. It's a social issue. So they destroyed uh, the billboard in Blawayo. We have said all that. Uh, the constitution of Zimbabwe said we, the people of Zimbabwe, in all our diversity, they're looking at race, at religion, at, at ethnicity, at sexual orientation. So there should be no discrimination. So what we've done, we've reported to the police and we are expecting uh, justice. We are expecting those people to be arrested. We are expecting them to do thorough investigation. So that alone is a celebration. That alone is what we are seeing. It's that alone, that transformation that we, we, we are seeing. Thanks so much, Grace. It's always so yummy to hear and soak in into what queer joy or LGBTI joy is. Um, and since we began speaking about joy and extending that also to pleasure, our first episode, we talked about pleasure. Um, and my question is, even surrounding the topic of sexual pleasure and thinking about access to sexual and reproductive health services and information, what has that been looking like and what are some of the opportunities that have revealed themselves during this period? I know that you mentioned that you adopted ways of working uh, online and using uh, social media tools um, or communication tools such as WhatsApp in a bit to reach out to folks and um, ensure that they are well supported in terms of accessing sexual and productive health and sexual and productive health information. So what are some of the things and what are some of the ways in which that has been looking like uh, during the pandemic period? And um, what does the future in terms of maybe programming, when it comes to programming, SRH, SRH programming, what has that shifted within um, girls? Um, yes, we, we, during the pandemic, we've had a lot of um, inquiries, a lot of requests on MSM and WSW, Women Have Sex With Women, wanting to have, uh, to start a family. Um, when you look at that SRH or a component that has uh, the reproductive uh, connotation in it, means that the laws in Zimbabwe are not so good to allow um, adoption by a single man to have a child or by a single woman to adopt a child. So these are some of the SRHR issues that have been coming in to say, how can girls assist us to have families? Um, we have had um, clinics, but they are very expensive where they um, um, are conducting um, 
IVF, you would realize that IVF would cost something like 5,000, between 5,000 and 10,000, and uh, the community is not able to afford. Uh, there are also other methods through uh, uh, stakeholders and partnerships, such as uh, Population Services Zimbabwe, where they've been offering such um, a kind of services where on your ovulation dates, then you can come and they can do checks and they would say bring your partner then we can check for STIs and um, uh, we can do HIV tests and uh, that you can go and do at home insemination so that has worked out very well but they come for counseling we've been providing um, counseling on those couples that I've identified as a, a male they can have a they would want uh, to sire their baby and uh, we have also provided ongoing counseling and psychosocial support um, in the meantime, what we've also done, we've conducted sensitization workshops, especially with the Health Portfolio Committee, uh, which is a thematic committee in Zimbabwe, to sensitize them on issues uh, that are coming out uh, from the LGBTI community, such as um, adoption, like I've highlighted, such as um, artificial insemination, such as um, surrogacy, to also say that as a, as a Minister of Health and Child Care, uh, in Zimbabwe. We don't want um, citizens of Zimbabwe to be taught by YouTube or Google YouTube because everything that comes out from Google or YouTube is not true. But we expect healthcare workers or uh, sensitized health professionals to be able to offer these services because what we have said to them, we are saying, you are stuck up. And uh, the young generation are doing these things and they, they, are, they, are, they are consulting technology whilst you people are there. So what is your work now and what is the job that you're doing? So all those sensitization workshops that we have done is also to try and alleviate the challenges that are coming from the community. But also realize that the community has also been empowered to self-organize themselves. For example, issues to do with surrogacy. They've managed to identify somebody who can carry the baby for them for nine months. Then they go to a legal person or a lawyer who can then draft contract or who can draft a document for them and they sign in agreement. So those are some of the things that um, actually have been, that girls has done and that girls has put on, on table. On issues to do with um, the STIs that I mentioned, what we have done is um, we also in partnership with uh, health organizations, uh, some of them are Newlands Clinic, some of them are also PSI. We've also man we've also managed to um, take our our community there so that they can go for cryotherapy or laserization for those with um, advanced uh, uh, genital warts, so that they get that uh, needed treatment and uh, their health does not deteriorate. So those are some of the, 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 the things that we've set up when it comes to, to SRHR so that they have um, a comprehensive sexual education. It has been very difficult for us to penetrate the tertiary institutions. But what we have done also is that we have what we call older advocates. Older advocates are peer educators in tertiary institutions who are trained activists and advocates. Uh, who we also then are able to reach out to and we also invite them for activities, especially on um, SRHR because they're quite active and they live in campus or somewhere outside campus to try and reduce um, uh, any other sexual reproductive health challenges they might be having in campus or in their, in their daily lives. So 
we also have we also have identified what we call uh, guidance counselors in schools in primary and secondary so we are also working with these guidance counselors informally to say i invite queer i know john we invite them so that we have this sensitization programs with them because they are able to identify a child to they are able to see that the sexual orientation of a child when they are growing up, even from primary school, even from secondary education. But wherever, we've also made use of LGBTI tertiary institutions and universities like Africa, Africa, um, Africa University in um, in Manikaland, that is in Mutari. Uh, it's a Methodist church run. It's LGBTIQ plus friendly. We are also using that as a model uh, uh, university that is um, friendly to LGBTI people, so we encourage. We've also noticed that uh, they invite us to to deliver workshops for social work classes or psychology classes where they want to understand about uh, uh, SOGI issues. Um, so that is uh, also MSU, which is Midland State University, is also LGBTIQ plus friendly, where we also go and recently they had a debate they had a debate on um, LGBTIQ plus in Zimbabwe. So we have managed to also penetrate in those systems and they are friendly and they freely invite us to come and be part of them and also to be able to disseminate information to uh, various populations. We're so grateful for the work that folks like Grace and Khaleesi are doing. These are incredible life-changing and life-supporting efforts that community organizers are plugged in. We honor their work. It cannot be disputed that sexual and gender minorities have a lot to fight against. That's a big part of LGBTQI experience. If you are experiencing violence and are in need of support, please check out chain.co, that is C-H-A-Y-N, .co for support. Follow us on social media for more resources as well. It is important to mention that LGBTQIA folk not only experience the heavy, but also the lightness of experiences such as joy, pleasure, play. Well, that's all we have for you today. I hope that you carry the different reflections with you. Join us next time where we'll be talking about sexual and reproductive health and rights in humanitarian settings. Until then, Take care. The support of Not Your Usual Subjects podcast comes from staff and volunteers at Stories to Action who are conjuring alongside young people situated across borders all around the world. Together, we envision a world where every young person's voice is heard on their sexual health and reproductive rights even in times of public health emergencies like COVID-19. We would like to honor, thank, and acknowledge all our contributors and guests for sharing their stories to action. ShareNet International Netherlands, who we are so deeply grateful for funding and resourcing this podcast, reminds us of the role that philanthropy in working with youth in their diversity should and can play in raising collective consciousness please head on over to share-netinternational.org to find your regional hub. Please commune with us on social media to find out about our next episode and share your feedback, thoughts, and reflections with us. This is on Facebook, Twitter, 
Instagram, LinkedIn at Stories to Action. Links are available on the show notes at the podcasting platform of your choice that you listen to us from. Please share this episode with someone, awesome ones, you know should have a listen. Goodbye.